You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So about 10 years ago, when Melissa and I lived in South Minneapolis, I had this little part-time job um, with an, an inner-city after-school program. And I, I think the, the main idea behind this program, as I think for most after-school programs, was, was mainly to help keep these kids out of trouble. Um, some of you guys know that the uh, that that window of time from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. like a lot of stuff can go down in those two hours, and so my my job was uh, with this program to show up and to lead in some good alternative activities for these these kids, and um, it was a cool gig. Like we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of uh, urban hiking, which uh, was pretty sweet. And I uh, got to, you know, get to know these kids, talk to these kids throughout the year, and I got to hear their stories, and, and some of these students had some hard stories. I, there's, there was one, one story in particular that I have, I think, probably thought about maybe a thousand times since I heard it, and, and Psalm 7 this week brought it all back to mind. Um, this, was, this, this student, she was kind of the, the leader of the, the other girl students, and she told me that a few years earlier, her younger sister had died, except she, she didn't say it like that. She, she just told me what had happened. It was, her, it was her toddler sister, and this little toddler sister was in their home and had wandered down the steps to their basement and the basement was where they kept their pit bull and the dog attacked this little girl. It's like one of those stories that when you hear it, it just kind of gets stuck somewhere in here. Like, I have imagined over you know the last 10 years, over and over again, I have imagined what it must have been been like for this defenseless little toddler to innocently step into a space where an animal would attack her and there was nobody there to stop it. Like every fiber of fatherness in me, like I just want to do something, you know, like I, I can't stand it. I can't stand that sort of, none of us can stand that sort of Thing it's the thought it's the it's the thought of an innocent person being completely vulnerable to an evil attacker. Like that thought evokes so much emotion in us. It's what David is actually doing here in Psalm seven and verses one and two. Here in Psalm 7, David starts the psalm with an image. This is the image. He says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. This is what we we can call this David's realism. Right, because David is just being honest here about his situation, and he is using graphic imagery. He says, God, I'm hiding in you, and you've got to save me from my enemy, because if you don't, my enemy will be like a lion, and they will tear my soul apart. 
That's what he's saying. And the word here for soul is this Hebrew word that means life or breath. And sometimes it's, it's translated as neck or as throat. And the idea is that this is where the life is, okay? And, and that's the image that David means to give us. Life is what his enemy wants to tear away. And David, of course, used to be a shepherd, and so he knows what a lion can do. David has seen what a lion can do, and so he understands that if God does not deliver him, if God doesn't show up and save him, he is by himself all alone, and he's got nobody to stop this lion that wants to tear out his throat. Psalm 7, 1 and 2. That's the image that David gives us. And it's connected to an historical event. We see this in the superscript. If you guys look right above verse 1, you'll notice um, there's you know, the, the, the small caps, the, the superscript. This is, what, this is what it says. If you can notice that, it says, The, the Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, that word there, Shagayan, I think is how we say that. It's a musical term that's meant to signal a certain type of melody that befits the psalm. Okay, we don't know exactly how it sounded, but we know it's here as kind of a cue that this sound, whatever it is, is supposed to accompany David's prayer, which he says, which he's saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, this is interesting because we don't know exactly what's being referenced here. We don't know exactly what he's talking about. In Psalm 3, you remember the the superscript in Psalm 3, um, it says that uh, it was written in the context of when David fled from Absalom. That's what the superscript says. And we know from from the story of David from the Old Testament and 2 Samuel, we can go back and we can read all about that particular time in David's life. But here in Psalm 7, this is a, it's a different story because we, we, we can't find a man, if we go back and look in the Old Testament, we, we can't find a man named Cush, a Benjaminite. And so we, we don't know exactly who this is. We don't know exactly the words that he said to David. But although we don't know exactly what's being referenced here, I think there's still enough here for us to figure out what's going on, okay? We, I think we can figure it out. Whoever Cush was, we see here he was a Benjaminite, okay? And we also know that King Saul was a Benjaminite. And remember that King David, he assumed the throne of Israel after God stripped it away from Saul. We can read in 2 Samuel 16, that the extended family of Saul, like Saul's fellow Benjaminites, were very bitter about this, and they were bitter about it even years later. There's actually this one guy named Shimei. If you guys remember Shimei, uh, Pastor Joe told us all about Shimei a few weeks ago. Uh, when David was fleeing from Absalom, uh, fleeing Jerusalem, uh, Shimei was the guy who, as David was leaving town, he was publicly cursing David and throwing dirt at him, throwing rocks at him. And in 2 Samuel 16, David refers to him as a Benjaminite. Shimei was a Benjaminite. 
And so Psalm 7, something, it could be about Shimei, it could be about him, or it could be about another Benjaminite that we just don't have the story of. But either way, the accusations and the attack that we see from Shimei in 2 Samuel 16, they kind of line up with the same things that's happening here. Either way, it's the same thing is happening. It's that the Benjaminites did not like David. And they set themselves up as the enemies of David. They accused David of evil against Saul. They said that David had wrongfully became the king over Israel, and they were intent on making David pay. That's the Benjaminites. And so David gets it here. He understands what's going on. He knows what the Benjaminites were trying to do, and so he just says it here. This is his realism. He just says, this is what's happening. And he's, he talks about it historically, but also with imagery. When it comes to history, David's enemy was a family member of Saul who spoke a false narrative about David's kingship and wanted to punish him. When it comes to the level of imagery, David's enemy was like a lion that wanted to rip out his throat. That's what's happening in Psalm 7. Like that, that's, that's the story behind Psalm 7. That's David's realism here. And so if this is going on here in Psalm 7, what is David going to do? That's our question. What, what is David going to do about this? And well, the rest of the psalm shows us what he does. Right after David's realism, we see David's appeal. And then we see David's hope. And those are the three points for the sermon. So point one is David's realism. Point two is David's appeal. And then point three is David's hope. And we've already got one down. So now we just have two more to go. All right, that's what we're going to look at for the rest of our sermon. But before before we get there, I, I need to Hit pause for a second, and I want to say just a little bit about the, the structure of this psalm, the way it's written. This is a special psalm because this psalm is written in what's called a chiastic structure. All right, so a, a chiastic structure is basically this like ancient literary technique that arranges text in a, a very symmetrical order. And typically, the center of a passage is like the main point. Sometimes this happens in larger writings. People say that Homer did this and Herodotus and other ancient authors. But a lot of times, we see it in like smaller passages. And it typically, it goes like this. If you just use your, think here about how a, chi- a chiasm works, it goes like this. Usually, it's, it's like the first and last part go together, and then like the second part goes together. Then like the third part goes together and it actually keeps going until finally you get to the very center of this thing and the center is the central message. And the Psalms do this several times. Um, Other places in the Bible do this. But but Psalm 7 here is actually a perfect example. Like this this is so beautiful how Psalm 7 does this. So if you can imagine here with me, Psalm 7 is like A-A-B-B-C-C. And then like DD right here. And, and that's the very center of the passage, which comes in verse 9. This is a, a genius literary technique. And it's artistic, and it's beautiful, and it's poetic. Um, 
Or you could just think about it like you think about a cheeseburger, okay? And as I, you know, was thinking about, um, man, how do I explain this? Chiastic. Imagine, imagine for a minute, imagine a cheeseburger, okay? Now, the middle of the burger is where you find the meat, right? Amen? You, get, you, got, you got it? Now, that's the good part. That's the main, that's the feature presentation. Everything else is accessories, right? We, everything else is, is basically set up to feature the meat, which is the center. That's, that is basically a chiastic structure. Can you guys imagine that? Alex, let's roll the burger. It looks kind of like this. It, if you need some help here, I, I, do, I use this slide like once every three years. So I just had a, look at this thing. Look at this. So the way it works is verses 1 and 2 and verse 17 go together. That's like that's the pretzel bun, okay? And then, and then B is verse, verses 3 to 7. And then verses 12 to 16, and that's the double lettuce. You got, you got to work with me here, okay? Need a little help with that. Um, and then C, verse, verse 8, and then verses 10 and 11, that's the double cheese, okay? And all of that is getting to verse 9. Verse 9 is the main point of the passage, okay? That, that's, the, that's like the beef right there, okay? That's the, that's the good part. And that in this passage, verse 9, is David's hope. Okay. I think we're good with the burger. You guys good with the burger? You get it? All right. That's Psalm 7. And, and, and so it's one of those things where, like, you know, the main point is the middle of the passage. So I want us to, I want us to end the sermon in the middle. All right. And so um, before we get there, though, I want us to look at what we can call David's appeal. This starts in verses 3 to 7. 3 to 7 is paralleled with verses 12 to 16. In both of these parts, David is appealing to God for justice, but in different ways. Look at verse 3. Oh, Lord, my God, if I've done this, if, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. David, he's straightforward here. He, he's saying, Lord, if I'm guilty of these accusations, if I have done the things that this person has brought against me, then, yeah, let him destroy me. David is asking for God's justice because he is confident about his innocence. The boldness of his appeal matches the cleanness of his conscience. He knows that God does what is right. It would be unjust to punish an innocent man, and so God won't do that. Now, David doesn't know what people won't do. But he knows what God won't do, and so he is appealing to God, God judge here. He, he takes his knowledge of God and of God's justice, and he appeals to God. We see the exact same idea in verses 12 to 16, except this is the other side. It's not about innocence. It's about wickedness. David knows that God's justice requires his vindication and then his enemy's judgment. Look at verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword 
He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Look at verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So the wicked, the unrepentant, those who persist in opposition to God and his people, they will not make it because that is right. It is right for the innocent to be vindicated and for the wicked to be destroyed. And there are two parts to this destruction. In one part, in verses 12 to 13, God is the active avenger, right? Notice the language here. God is described as a warrior who has his bow drawn, and he is ready to unleash wrath on the unrepentant. Then there's the other part in verses 15 and 16, and this is basically the self-imploding of the wicked. So there's what God does to the wicked. Then there's what the wicked do to themselves. Look at this in verse 15. The wicked fall into a pit that they themselves have dug. The the, the wicked do wicked things, and then that comes back down on their old heads. It's It's actually kind of like the old Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is kind of old school here, okay? So if you guys remember, those, those cartoons, the, the, whole, the whole cartoon over and over again is basically the coyote is trying to destroy the roadrunner, but everything he tries ends up coming back on him. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about here. So like one, 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 for example, one story is like the, the coyote has this plan where he takes some bird seed and he puts a lot of steel pellets in this bird seed and he puts it out in the road and the, and the road runner, of course, is all the time doing this and he actually stops and he eats the bird seed because it's bird seed, but he doesn't know that he's also swallowing all this steel and then the, the road runner runs off and the coyote comes out, he's got this big grin on his face and he happens to have this giant magnet, okay, this is this giant magnet. And he holds this magnet, and his plan is that the strength of this magnet is going to suck the roadrunner back because he ate steel. And so he's holding this magnet and just like grinning. And next thing you know, instead of attracting the roadrunner, he attracts this giant stick of dynamite. There's always dynamite laying around. And it happens to be lit. And so he's, you know, it comes, all of a sudden, boom, that's the story. He, it, he's, you know, he blew up. And that's, that's basically that cartoon over and over. It is Psalm 7, verse 16. Over and over again. That's what's going on here with the wicked. The harm that they intend on the innocent will become the anvil that crushes their own heads. That's what the psalmist David is saying here. And this all gets at a larger category that is just part of reality in this world. This is just reality here. This is the category that by and large, listen carefully here. This is the category that by and large, in most cases, people tend to reap what they sow. Okay, so that, that is the truth in the Bible. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, whatever 
one sows, that will he also reap. So this is a truth in the Bible. But it really just started as an ancient proverb. This, this, this truth is just conventional wisdom about how the world works. It's that people tend to harvest their investment. Right? People tend to harvest their investment. If your oven works and you have all the ingredients and you follow all the steps, you will reap a good creme brulee. If you don't, you get an egg bake, right? This is, like our, this is our normal expectation as humans who live in this world. We all have an inner sense of, of both justice and causality. If we do certain causes, it will have a certain effect. And this is so normal and so expected that anytime it doesn't happen that way, we do not like it. We have words for this, words like injustice, words like suffering. That, that is when the wicked flourish and the righteous are afflicted. And we know it happens. We know it happens. Ecclesiastes 9 tells us this happens. The, the Psalms tell us this happens. You know from your experience that this happens. And it just means that sometimes, sometimes too many times, the way it is, is not the way it's supposed to be. Get this part. Injustice and suffering are common in this world, but they are never natural. They're common, but they're never natural. They are common in a world that has been corrupted by sin, but they are never natural in a world that has been designed with God's moral order. Within God's moral order, in the normal way of doing things where there is right and wrong, in that world, by and large, you sow bad, you reap bad. You sow good, you reap good. Okay, That's not the whole story. We know it's not the whole story. But that is normal reality in this world. And so much of our lives is based on this reality. This is, this is how we get around. Think about this. So much of what you do every single day is because you expect what you do to have a certain outcome, right? Think about this. This is why you brush your teeth, right? Everybody's like, come on, that's right. We know that. This is, what we, this is, why, this is why you go to school. Right? This is why you do your job. There, there are a thousand things that we do every single day because of this reason. Because we believe, we know, we expect the things we do to have a certain effect. That's how the world works. And David knows that. David knows that. That's the nature of his appeal. Within God's moral order, David wants and expects for God to treat him in accordance with his righteousness and for God to treat his enemies in accordance with their wickedness. David is asking for that. But wait a minute, right? Wait a minute. Whoa, this is, this is you know. I don't know about you. But when I see David talking about his own righteousness in verse 8, it makes me uncomfortable. 
because we, we're good Protestants around here, right? We, we believe the Bible teaches we're saved because of Jesus' righteousness, not our own righteousness. Self-righteousness, our trying to be good enough for God to save, that's just garbage, man. We, we don't believe that. We reject that. So then what's, what's David doing here? What, how do we make sense of this? Well, there are two important details we need to have, we need to know for Psalm 7. It's that, first, David's appeal is particular, not universal. And there's a difference between personal integrity and self-righteousness. First, remember that David is responding to an historical event here, okay? This Benjaminite has said untrue things about David, and David wants it rectified. David is not making his appeal here before the judgment seat of Christ on the last day. David would not stand before God, bringing the totality of his life under God's review and say, judge me according to my righteousness. David would never, we know, we know David would never do that. This is David, right? We know who this is. We, we know David's words in Psalm 32, verse 1. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven against the, the one whose sins are covered. Then in Psalm 30, at 130, verse 3, the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. At the end of the day, David is not trying to bring his righteousness to God so that God would save him. David needs the mercy of God. Like When it's all said and done, David's only chance is the mercy of God. But in this particular instance of Psalm 7, the mercy of God looks like justice concerning these particular accusations. And justice concerning these particular accusations means the vindication of David because David was innocent. David did not do the things his enemy has accused him of, and we know he didn't. We can read about it. Like in 1 Samuel 24, this is, you know, we already know in 1 Samuel 24 that God has decided to strip away the kingdom from Saul and to make David the king. David was anointed the king in 1 Samuel 16. He defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And by 1 Samuel 18, Saul is already jealous because of David. He's already jealous because, of course, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And we see that Saul attempts to kill David several times. Like over and over again, Saul is trying to kill David. Eventually, he runs David out of Jerusalem. And David and his little band of fighters are just constantly on the run. And Saul is pursuing him, trying to kill him. And there's this one particular scene in 1 Samuel 24 where David has been hiding out in this cave. So David and his little band of fighters are in this cave. And Saul is out looking for David with an army of 3,000 men. And they happen across this cave. And Saul, they have no idea that David's inside the cave, but Saul decides this cave is a great place to use the bathroom. And so imagine this, okay? This is the story in 1 Samuel 24. David and his fighters, his team, his men, are in the innermost part of the cave in the shadows. And Saul, of all people, Saul, comes walking into the cave, 
completely oblivious that David is there, and, and he, you know, he, he squats down or whatever to use the bathroom. And David is right there, feet away from Saul. And in terms, I mean, in terms of like dramatic irony in the Bible, this is, a, this is crazy. Like this scene is amazing. David is just feet away from Saul, and David's men say to him, David, like, here's your chance, man. Like, there he is. Take your sword, one swing of the sword. We can end this whole thing. And David, he sneaks up close enough to Saul, which is a little awkward, and he, he cuts off part of his garment. This is all, you know, strange. He cuts off part of his garment. And the Bible says in, in, in 1 Samuel 24, when he cuts off part of his, his robe, David's convicted. And David says, far be it from me to lift my hand against God's anointed king. David says, I'm not going to kill Saul. If God wants me to be king, God will make me king. And then a little bit later, when, when Saul's out of the cave, it's revealed to Saul that David has spared his life. And Saul looks at David and he says, you are righteous. You, David, you are more righteous than I. You are righteous. And David was righteous. See, Saul calls David righteous because David was righteous. David did the right thing. So for this Benjaminite now, years later, for this Benjaminite to accuse David of wronging Saul, for this Benjaminite to say that David was unethical or that David has sinned against Saul, it's just not true. It's a lie. We see the story. David has walked in his integrity concerning Saul. And David walking in his integrity is not the same as self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, again, is when we think we can earn God's salvation by our performance. You can't. You can't. God saves us only by his grace because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's the gospel. God's salvation is a gift. And personal integrity is living in a manner that is fitting to the gift. It's walking in step with the truth of the gospel. And the difference between personal integrity and self-righteousness is just assumed in the Bible. It's why Paul can say in Philippians 3.8, I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. Paul rejects self-righteousness. He needs the righteousness of Jesus. And he also says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And he also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, that God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, it was the grace of God that is with me. So it goes like this. Only the righteousness of Jesus makes us acceptable to God. It's our integrity that makes us usable for God. And every bit of it is grace. Grace. Grace is the rock bottom here, okay? The grace of God is the rock bottom, which means there's no room for pride. Paul, uh, David is not being prideful in Psalm 7. He's, not being, he's just saying, God, you know. 
You hear the words of Cush the Benjaminite, and you know that I have walked in the integrity of my heart with Saul. So, God, you know it. You see it. God, you have to judge this thing. That's his appeal. And this appeal is all focusing here on verse 9, which is David's hope. Look at verse 8 first. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Look at verse 10. This is the cheese again. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. David says that God is his judge, and he wants God to be his judge because God's judgment is the only judgment he can trust. Now here's verse 9. This is the center of the passage. Let the evil, let the evil of the wicked come to an end that you may establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. In verse 9, David is longing for what he knows will one day be. This is not a pipe dream petition. This is a statement of hope. See, whatever happens with this Benjaminite, whether or not an earthly court will judge rightly in this particular case, David knows that one day everything will be put right. This entire world will be put back together in order and righteousness by the righteous God who can read minds and hearts. The righteous God, our righteous God, will have a righteous world. And in that righteous world, the wicked will be no more and the righteous will be established. That is our hope. That is our future hope. In verse 9, David is longing for the new creation. And the new creation will be a world of peace. And it's going to be peace that we can't even fathom. Like we cannot wrap our minds around the peace that will be in this world. We can try. Like the Bible helps us here. We can use our imaginations. Isaiah tells us that this new world, the new creation, this world where everything will be right, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and lion will walk side by side, being led by the hand of a toddler. Can you imagine that? Like, try, try. Try to imagine that. Little babies that crawl are going to stick their hands in the hole of a cobra. Kids of all ages will be able to play with any kind of dog they want, anywhere they want, because that is right. That is right. That is right. And God is making a world that is right. It's not this world. We're not there yet. It's not, it's not this world, but it is a world that God is bringing here by his righteousness, and it's the world that we all long for. We all long for this world. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, every single one of us have a longing for this world. We do. Everybody wants a new and better world. Isn't that, that's what technology is. Technology is just our pining for a new and better world. But the story is this. That, hey, only God 
can make this new and better. Where only God can bring this new creation. And so the question now for us personally is, will we be there? Will we, in this new world, will we be brought to an end? Or will we be established? And the answer has to do with whether or not you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to you. On the last day, when we stand before Jesus and he welcomes us into his kingdom, we know it's only because of him. We know. This is only by your grace, Jesus. It's only by your grace. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Jesus has made a way for us, and so this morning we are called to trust him. Christian, trust him. Adore him. If you don't know him, trust him. Today is the day of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus and let us give him thanks. That's what we do at this table. Each week when we come to the Lord's table, we we come here to give Jesus thanks for his death for us on the cross. At this table, the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. The, The cup represents the blood of Jesus that he shed for us. And as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are saying to Jesus, thank you. We are imagining the future day when we will be with Jesus in his kingdom. And we are saying, thank you. Jesus is our only way. Jesus is our only chance. And this morning, if that's your hope, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we want to invite you. Let's eat and drink together. Come to this table together. We're going to serve the bread first. You can just hold it, and then we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.